If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 724. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Buy a class or 20 there. I've got a new class out on Jefferson Davis. Use the coupon code DAVIS, and you can get $60 off until the end of October. So it's a great win-win. You get a great class on Davis, 25 lectures on Jefferson Davis and documents that are important for understanding Jefferson Davis and, of course, the position of the South. That's the idea of history to understand. And, in fact, I'm going to bring up Jefferson Davis today in this particular podcast. You can also support the show by going to uh, brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Or click on the super thanks button under the video if you're watching on YouTube. Or you can, of course, click on the uh, shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Or even go to anchor.fm and subscribe there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review if you're on YouTube. Comment for the algorithm. Do all the things you can do to get more eyeballs or ears on the podcast. And, of course, you can also send me those show requests. I do like to hear or read what you want to hear. So all kinds of great stuff. Let's talk about the topic of the day, and we're going to wrap up this week on myths. And... um, Abraham Lincoln, right? I mean, Lincoln is the key to it all. And I want to finish with a book that I've mentioned before. It's by Noah Feldman. The title of the book is The Broken Constitution. And this book, I think, I mean, works very well with uh, with uh, Barnett and Burnick and what they talked about in the book I discussed yesterday on the 14th Amendment. And, of course, this new constitution that was created in 1868 but really 1865, when you start looking at the end of the war and the beginning of Reconstruction. What, Bo, what the, both groups of authors, Barnett, uh, Burnett, uh, Barnett, Burnick, and Feldman, all agree upon is that we have a new constitution when the war is over. It's something entirely different. That the old constitution was dead. And what Feldman recognizes, which is amazing, is that the old essentially the originalist interpretation of the Constitution, that the Constitution did not have power to do X, Y, and Z, that the Constitution was a very limiting document, it was a federalist document, federalism with a lowercase f, that states had primacy, all of that is true. He basically admits all of that was true. But what happens with Abraham Lincoln is is a transformation. In his mind, and I'm going to read part of his introduction because... He lays it all out in the introduction. And again, if you take the causes of the Civil War, I'm probably going to include this, or I am going to include this, I should say, in kind of this new interpretation of the Constitution and the war itself and what caused the war. Uh, Feldman would essentially say if there wasn't slavery, there would be no war, um, that the, the rupture wouldn't have come. But it was a constitutional crisis more than anything else. 
And it was a constitutional crisis because of the issue of slavery. Slavery enhanced this constitutional divide. And uh, what he doesn't bring up, of course, is that the, on the other side of that is the nationalist push, the centralizing push. Now, he does admit in certain places that, of course, the founding generation, the nationalists among them, were foremost interested in a union. And then at that point, uh, they were willing to compromise and everything to save the union. But once the union was there, then they realized the United States, he actually makes this point in a note. The United States, the nationalists realized the United States wasn't going anywhere, so now we have to go put the pedal to the metal and go full bore on nationalism. And that becomes the problem, right? Because it was only ratified because it was a federal constitution. It maintained the federal republic as under the Articles. That's the only reason it was ratified. So when the when the nationalists start their program, Hamilton and James Wilson and John Marshall, uh, Governor Morris, Fisher Ames, all these nationalists start their program and start to push for a much stronger central government. Those who had ratified it said, wait a second here. This isn't what we got. This is what we, you said you were going to get. In fact, you explicitly argued against it. But because the union was secure, they could go out and do this. So the originalist argument of a decentralized federal republic is actually the proper way to understand the 1788 Constitution. This is what Feldman agrees with, and this is essentially what Barnett and Burnick agree with. They all agree with that. But 1865 was a transformational year. It was a watershed year. It was a year a new republic was created, or a new nation, more importantly, was created, a national government. And this goes back to McClay, and it goes back to the Straussians, who worship Abraham Lincoln, and, of course, these progressive originalists. What they are saying is that we have two Americas. We have the America before the war and America after the war. Antebellum America and postbellum America. Not only that, we have an antebellum constitution and a postbellum constitution. And so what Feldman says is that anybody goes back and says we got to adhere to this, this antebellum constitution is entirely wrong. We shouldn't even look at that anymore. We should look at the postbellum constitution, including the 13th and 14th Amendment, particularly the 14th Amendment, because that, of course, gave the United States its new birth of freedom. 13th Amendment does the same thing. And even in Barnett and Burnick, they say at the end, when I, I talked about this yesterday, we th we're thankful for Lincoln, we're thankful for the 13th Amendment, and we're really thankful for the 14th Amendment and essentially an open-ended interpretation of what that means. We can't, we can't be rigidly in, uh, held to the, to the 39th Congress. We have to go beyond that because they said this is the floor. Well, they didn't really say that, but this is the floor, right? So anything beyond that, it's not really substantive due process because if we go back and we look at all these originalist arguments, all these things floating around out there before even this period of time, by the Republicans and all these people, we find that all these arguments are already made and that that would become the original understanding. You go back before the Civil Rights Act of 1866. You go back before the 14th Amendment and you look at the arguments being made in the 1850s and 40s and 30s. And you even go back to the 18th century, and that becomes the basis of the 14th Amendment. You see, it's a real stretch, but it's essentially what these people are doing, these progressive originalists. I would say that, again, that's, that's stretching the, the point here, and it's becoming more of an open-ended, you know, loose construction uh, interpretation of the Constitution and a vast distortion of the 14th Amendment, again, as Raul Berger, Raul Berger, excuse me, in Government by Judiciary just smashes. 
But I want to get into this Broken Constitution book. In fact, the title, and this is, let me show you the book, just the title, The Broken Constitution, even the subtitle, Lincoln, Slavery, and the Refounding of America. The Refounding. Now, who said that? Thad Stevens said that we're reconstructing America. We're not just resuming America. This is not resumption after the war is over. Reconstruction at a concrete term. If you take my Radical Republicans class at McClanahan Academy, I get into this. Reconstruction at a concrete term. It meant completely recreating America. He talked about it. That was what Reconstruction really was. It wasn't just putting back together the Union. We are reconstructing America. This is a real revolution. Now, to some Republicans, they put the revolution claim on the South. They were the revolutionaries. But I think Southerners recognized that the real revolution was coming from the other side. Now, what's amazing about all this to me is that this is stuff that Southerners have been saying for years, even since the time of the war. And you know who agrees with them? Noah Feldman. In fact, the title of the book is taken from a quote from Jefferson Davis from 1850, a speech I cover in reading Jefferson Davis. It's one of his most important speeches. It was a speech on the Compromise of 1850. I spend a lot of time on it in the class. And so Davis says this, A moral crevice has occurred. Fanaticism and ignorance, political rivalry, sectional hate, strife for sectional dominion, have accumulated into a mighty flood and pour their turgid waters through the broken Constitution. Jefferson Davis, February 13, 1850. If you take my class on Jefferson Davis, I go through that speech in detail. It takes several lectures to do it. It's a, one of his longest speeches he ever made, and it's really good. It took a couple of days to get through, uh, but he was right. Okay, so he's seeing in 1850, he's already perceiving. This is where the, the uh, progressive originalists would go back to there and say, well, here it is, right? This is the, look at Charles Sumner and what he was saying in the Crimes Against Kansas speech just a few years later. That's the basis of progressive originalism. I agree, right? But it's not really originalism, but it's the basis of progressivism, modern progressive conservatism, modern progressive libertarianism, modern progressivism on the left. It's the basis of it all. The radical Republicans are the key to understanding America. It's what Southerners have been saying for years. It's almost like everything Southerners have said has been validated by all these people, but yet they just agree with it all. Well, you're right. It was a radical transformation. Well, you're right. The 14th Amendment did do this. Well, you're right. Lincoln was this guy. Well, you're right. Lincoln did destroy the Constitution. <clears throat> you're correct about all of that. That's good, you see. It's good that all these things happen. We don't need that original Federal Republic. We don't need this thing that was archaic. Because that opened the door for all kinds of abuse by the states. Even though, of course, the states had their own constitutions with their own Bill of Rights. And ultimately, uh, a lot of that stuff would have worked its way out. South slavery was abolished in Massachusetts. Massachusetts abolished slavery through a court order. It wasn't through the Constitution. John Adams, as I mentioned before, John Adams wrote a pro-slavery constitution that was rejected, not because it was pro-slavery, but some of the other stuff in it. And then, of course, the second constitution that he wrote. But Feldman does said some really interesting things in this introduction. That uh, I mean, it's it's amazing to be reading this in 2022. This book came out in 2022, I believe. I think it came out this year, this year, or last year, but I think it was this year. No, 2021. Okay, 2021. Um, but he, I can't. Some of the years when the books come out run together because I get them, and then it takes me some time to go through them. I have so many things to read. 
Uh, but this particular understanding of Lincoln and the Constitution is a, it's an amazing transformation of the historical profession, if people believe it. right? And I, I think the Feldman book is, is a, because Feldman is mainstream, and these are things that, uh, you know, constitutional problems under Lincoln by Randall. I mean, these are things that people have pointed out for years, but of course, because they are the, the blundering generation. These are people that were racists. We can't believe them, right? But when someone like Noah Feldman says it, well, then it's true. <laughs> Look, this is how shallow the left and the establishment actually are. And when you have James Oakes writing for Randy Barnett, who was a, an originalist, right? You know, kind of a libertarian originalist and uh, left-wing libertarian originalist, uh, so, so to speak. But now he calls himself a progressive originalist. I mean, this is, this is where they get to. And, you know, Evan uh, Burnick, I mean... It gives, when you have James Oakes writing the introduction, who was a neo-abolitionist historian. I mean, Oakes' entire career is staked on slavery was it, right? Even Feldman cites Oakes in here to say this is it. Oakes is a big name in the profession. You've, I mean, that's it, right? You've, you've come establishment and people believe what you're writing. He starts with an account of Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation. And how this was a radical departure from the Constitution. Lincoln's hand was shaking, he said. And he says, Yet Lincoln's explanation of why his hand was trembling and his insistence on his single-minded confidence also suggest a need to reassure himself about contradicting the considered position he had held about slavery for the entire 30 years of his public life. Until that juncture in the war, Lincoln had always said publicly and believed privately that the federal government had no constitutional power to end slavery, as troubling as an institution might have been to him. If Congress, the lawmaking branch, lacked the authority to emancipate the slaves, then the president, acting on his own, certainly had no such capacity. So Feldman's actually agreeing with... Uh, Benjamin Robbins Curtis, who I talk about in the Copperheads class, as saying Lincoln was violating the Constitution. Here, Feldman is arguing that Lincoln understood. He knew it. He knew it. But then the next line is important. Lincoln's act of emancipating enslaved people held in the rebellious Confederacy marked the culmination of an extraordinary transformation in his beliefs about the meaning of the Constitution. He still purported to believe that slaves were private property and that private property was protected by constitutional guarantee. Now, however, he, held, he had allowed himself to develop an additional belief. Allowed himself to develop an additional belief. In other words, he was transforming America. He was going beyond the Constitution and creating a new Constitution, which is the one that we live under today, yet the old Constitution is still there. This is why all these people focus on the 14th Amendment, because... If you say there's a new constitution and you say the 14th Amendment should be, should be strictly adhered to the way that the men who wrote it said it would be adhered to, well, then you can't do any of the stuff that we're doing. It becomes all unconstitutional. It's all substantive due process. This is why Barnett made a point to say this isn't really substantive due process. This isn't that at all. This is all you know stuff based on the way people thought about things. It's not really because the substantive due process argument will get you in trouble with... The um, 
that the uh, Supreme Court in the 1850s, the Dred Scott decision, right? So it gets you in trouble with that. As commander-in-chief, he had the legal power to order the otherwise unconstitutional taking of the property of the citizens of states prosecuting the war of rebellion. Lincoln had this now. This is his major shift. He understands he has this power. Well, where does it come from? It doesn't come from Article 2. doesn't come from Article 1. doesn't come from Article 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 or 7. It doesn't come from any of the articles of the Constitution. It comes from Lincoln deciding he has the power. So Feldman essentially is recognizing Lincoln really didn't have any constitutional power to do this. He just did it. But when Lincoln did this, as Feldman says, Lincoln was transforming the meaning of the Civil War itself. What had begun as a war justified in the name of Union now became a war to end slavery. But simultaneously, and just as important, Lincoln was also reforming the basic charter of the Constitution. That's what Lincoln was doing with the Emancipation Proclamation. Reforming the basic charter of the Constitution. He is giving the presidency expansive powers, and he's doing it under a moral higher law, supposedly. But what Feldman leaves out, of, leaves out, of course, is just, uh, a, a just I mean, a, not even a month before signing the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and doing that. In December, in December, he had, in his speech to Congress, he had outlined a way that slavery could still exist in the South with constitutional amendments until essentially uh, like 19, 1921. I mean, 1917 to 1921. This is what you're looking at. Slavery could still have existed until then because he was allowing slavery to exist to 1900. And then you, a person born in 1900 that was enslaved could still be a slave until 1921 until they reached reach the age of maturity. So Lincoln was willing to let slavery exist as it was in 1862 for, what, another 60 years? 60 years. And even then he said, well, I mean, you can make laws to change that if you want. I mean, we can. some of this can be worked out. But Lincoln was willing to let it exist to give the South time to work this out so that slavery could end gradually, as it had in the North. That's missed in Feldman's uh, telling of the story here. Okay, but then I want to get into what actually happened and then what Feldman says about some of the interesting parts of the Constitution. And I don't want to go for 50 minutes today, so I'm going to skip through this introduction. It's 13 pages. We're not going to do all of that. Okay. So he says emancipation was Lincoln's was not Lincoln's only dramatic breaking and remaking of the existing constitution though a radical unilateral interpretation reinterpretation through a radical excuse me let me say this again emancipation was not Lincoln's only dramatic breaking and remaking of the existing constitution through a radical unilateral reinterpretation of its meaning even before he issued the proclamation Lincoln confronted two other decision points of epical importance that paved the way for the culminating third. First, almost immediately on assuming the presidency, he had to decide, alone without Congress's help, to go to war to preserve the Union. Only in retrospect does it seem obvious that force was constitutionally justified in the face of secession. <laughs> it wasn't obvious even looking back on it, right? But this is only now can we say it was obvious that force was necessary. At the time, though, he actually agrees that... I mean, it may not have been necessary. Lincoln made this choice unilaterally without Congress 
So he's placing the blame of the war on Lincoln. It's amazing that he's saying this. But that was okay, because it had to end slavery, right? James Buchanan's administration had produced a report stating bluntly that the federal government had no constitutional authority to act if the state seceded. Nothing in the Constitution authorized war to save the Union. The precedent of 1776, as well as Lincoln's own words and views from the 1840s, supported letting the South go. Yet according to him, and only to him, his oath of office was an oath registered in heaven to preserve the Union. Only to him, right? So Feldman has just put the war on Lincoln's back. He's put it all on Lincoln's back. Lincoln chose Lincoln chose war, reinterpreting the Constitution through the claim that it had been broken by the South and that his action was justified to repair the breach. Lincoln chose war because the South chose secession. That was not a choice that had to be made, but essentially Feldman is agreeing with Southerners who said, yeah, Lincoln's the reason we had the war. This is why this book is amazing. He's saying out loud in an establishment book what people have been saying for years was the real cause of the war. Lincoln. Lincoln. Second, Lincoln acted again alone without Congress to suspend habeas corpus in the first days of the war, effectively transforming himself into a constitutional dictator. You can't make this up. I mean, this is why Feldman is so interesting here and why I love reading. I wanted you to get this introduction to this book. You got it. I mean, you do have to get this book too. Get Barnett's book as well and read it. Maybe you think I'm full of bunk in what I'm saying after you read the book. Maybe... You say, McClanahan, you're just full of it. I don't believe you. You're just pontificating here because these are your positions. But read Barnett's book with uh, Berger's book side by side and then make your own decision. I think that Berger blasts him out of the water. But anyways. Uh, but Lincoln, again, here acting alone. right? Acting alone, suspended habeas corpus. Turned himself to a constitutional dictator. The best and most obvious reading of the Constitution gave Congress alone the power the best and most obvious reading. It's not what the Republicans said, but it's what the Democrats said, and they were right, so Feldman is actually agreeing with the Democrats. The best and most obvious reading of the Constitution gave Congress alone the power to eliminate an arrested person's basic right to a judicial hearing when deemed necessary in cases of war or rebellion. Congress was not in session when Lincoln acted, but when it met months later in July, it refused to ratify Lincoln's actions. The president ignored the implicit rebuke and began imprisoning war opponents in the territory stretching from Washington, D.C. to New York, including a member of Congress and almost half the Maryland legislature. Lincoln tried to back away a year later, offering amnesties and releasing some political prisoners, but then he acted unilaterally again, this time suspending habeas corpus nationwide on September 24, 1862. As a result, thousands of civilians all over the Union were arrested and detained without trial, often for months or even years. Scores of newspapers critical of the war were shut down or blocked from being sent through the mail. Congress had not ratified this, this decision until March 1863. Over the course of the war, Lincoln's policies and orders created the most extreme oppression, suppression of free speech to occur at any time in U.S. history. Amazing. Feldman is saying, yeah, all these people are right about Lincoln. He is a dictator, and this is the most extreme suppression of free speech to occur at any time in U.S. history. Now, are we again approaching that in America with cancel culture and wokeism and everything else and you can't say anything? Are we approaching that position again? Or is it something else? But Or is this self-censoring, right? Not government suppression, but corporate suppression. 
of free speech because that's really what's happening now. It's corporate suppression. And then, of course, you have the, the civil courts getting involved and all kinds of things. But where are we going with this? And you don't want to put your faith in the government to act on your behalf because they're just as bad. Lincoln's effectiveness as a kind of dictator who could suspend constitutional rights at will based on a claim of necessity served as a model for the process that led him to abolish slavery by executive command. Hey, you know who said this? Me and nine presidents who screwed up America. And I'll never forget when I was on radio with that book, and I've said this before, how many conservatives hated that I bashed Abraham Lincoln for doing this stuff. So Feldman is essentially saying, yeah, I mean, all, he's right. McClanahan's right. Lincoln was a bad president when it came to the Constitution. But that doesn't matter because he, at the end of the day, it was all for a good reason. And that was to end slavery. The ends justify the means. And we created a whole new Constitution in the process. Isn't that wonderful? We have a whole new nation. And he actually says it. The Constitution, understood as a legal framework of the Union, provided Lincoln with the basis for going to war in the first place on the theory that states had no constitutional authority to secede, and that as president he had the constitutional duty to stop them. So on the theory, his theory, it basically says, I've discovered a new thing, that the Union is perpetual. I mean, people hadn't thought that before, but now, I mean, I've discovered this. So it's based on this theory. He came up with it. Oh, look, I was reading and I came up with this. Once the Constitution had been broken by secession, however, the war to reestablish it created a new constitutional situation, one in which the principles and rules embodied in the peacetime Constitution could be broken and transformed by the President in an effort to save the Constitution itself. You have to break the Constitution to save the Constitution. You can't make this up. He's justifying what Lincoln did to save the Constitution. But it'll be a new Constitution, and that's okay. This is a, this is a justification of Lincoln for breaking the Constitution and creating a new America without really any process by the people whatsoever. Even the 14th Amendment was not legally ratified. <laughs> it didn't really involve a large discussion of the entire public. It was the North that decided, and even two northern states rescinded their ratification when they figured out what it was going to do. So, was the 14th Amendment legally ratified? No. Congress just did it anyways. Seward did it anyways. But they knew it wasn't. And so, that's the rub here, right? This wasn't the same kind of process like the original Constitution, which had to be ratified, or eventually was ratified in all the states, but nine of the, of the 13, and uh, only really two states were holdouts, right? So, you had 11 that actually ratified. And the other two eventually came around, Rhode Island and North Carolina, but... That was a real process, as Pauline Myers pointed out. It was a public process out in the open for everyone to talk about in ratification. Of course, I talk about it in Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. It's a major process, right? And people were openly debating what the Constitution meant and what it would do. There was none of that with the 14th Amendment. It was done by fiat. It was done by a rump parliament that had unlimited power because Andrew Johnson was powerless to stop them. I mean, so how is this government of the people, by the people, and for the people, right, is the real question when you get to that. The breaking of the compact justified breaking the rules the compact contained. Rupture led to rupture, and that rupture led to transformation. So he's placing the blame, of course, back on the South for rupturing the Constitution in the first place, which allowed Lincoln to rupture the Constitution. Once that rupture happened, then they could rupture and do more rupture, and then you got more rupture and then transformation. 
It's a rupture to rupture to transformation, right? Ridiculous. Now, uh, he says, the subject of this book is the extraordinary arc of reversal in Lincoln's understanding of the Constitution and its climatic historic efforts, effects, I'm sorry, in the Constitution and the nation itself. My aim is to point a, paint a portrait of Lincoln as a constitutional thinker, one of the most influential in U.S. history and one of the most influential of all on the subject of the Constitution to, in crisis. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I don't think he really was much of a constitutional thinker, but, but Lincoln was a transformational figure. We talked about that all week. The Straussians would agree. Uh, Wilfred McCray would, would agree. Uh, Randy Barnett and uh, Evan Burnick were, would agree. I agree, right? Lincoln was a transformational figure, not in a good way either. To this end, I tell Lincoln's story and the story of the Constitution in tandem, highlighting a range of voices, including those of African Americans and women who belong in the historical record alongside elected politicians. Okay. Um, what kind of power did they have? Well, I mean, he's going to bring them in because that voice then leads to this understanding of a radical transformation of America because that's what you get. The vicissitudes of the Constitution, including self-relevant debates about whether the Constitution was inherently a pro-slavery document, can help us understand Lincoln's trajectory. In turn, Lincoln's evolution and high-stakes decisions reveal how the pre-war Constitution came to be ruptured and remade. So that's the important part. The Constitution was ruptured and remade. And he basically says, look, um, the Constitution that was there before 1861 was a different Constitution than the one we have now. He says, seeing it as a structure of compromise created a profound contradiction for every single supporter of the Constitution who also believed in the wrongness of slavery. From 1789 until 18. 1861, if you believed in the Constitution, you were believing in an agreement that contained and contained a that contained and continued, I'm sorry, a deep moral wrong. If you're willing to fight and die for the Union, you were necessarily also willing to fight for the perpetuation of slavery as a subordinate but necessary condition. Well, I wouldn't say that people really worried about that too much. No. Um, because it wasn't that, right? And most people didn't look at the issue of slavery in moral terms. Very few actually did in America. This is a very small segment of the population that did. So he's elevating that beyond what it really should be. A handful of abolitionists, white and black, condemned the Constitution as evil on the account of the Compromise. Another handful, also including thinkers of both races, insisted that the Constitution, all evidence to the contrary, actually opposed or outlawed slavery. Well, now that we, he just threw Randy Barnett under the bus, and Lysander Spooner, and Frederick Douglass... The Constitution actually opposed or outlawed slavery. What Feldman is saying is the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. Now, again, I would not... This is He's arguing against what I say, too, where it's not really either. It's not either. The Constitution had no power to do anything except for abolishing the slave trade, the international slave trade, and for reacquiring fugitive slaves. Other than that, it was mute on the subject. Because it was mute on the subject, the Congress can't do anything about it, positive or negative. It's nothing, right? Now, Calhoun would disagree. It's unconstitutionally, right? They could. If they can pass anything unconstitutionally, they can do whatever they want. All evidence to the contrary actually opposed or outlawed slavery. All evidence to the contrary. Those white Southerners who saw slavery as morally righteous felt no conflict. Well, again, they were only pushing that position because of 
attacks, right? And they didn't even talk about moral issues in 1789 or 1790 or 1796. That wasn't even on the table. And you had Northerners doing the exact same thing in Northern churches in the 1820s and 30s. Though, uh, I'm sorry. Um, they endorsed the Constitution as protecting slaveholders' rights while fretting that the guarantees might be breached. Almost everyone else, the mainstream of antebellum Americans, treated the constitutional compromise over slavery as legitimate despite the moral wrongfulness of the institution that the compromise protected and preserved. Lincoln accepted this contradictory compromise. More than that, as an admirer of Henry Clay, the great compromiser, and as a member of the Whig Party, the party of sectional compromise, Lincoln was fully committed to preserving the compromise in order to preserve the Union. Now, I wouldn't say the Whig Party is always the party of sectional compromise. I mean, come on. Uh... <laughs> No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, they were pushing the envelope all the time and then getting their way when the South was actually forced or Democrats were forced to compromise. Not really compromising. Of course, the Constitution built on compromise with slavery was prone to ultimate crisis and rupture. Lincoln's early beliefs and experiences reveal how this inevitable constitutional crisis was built into the compromise itself as it developed in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. So this next part is interesting because he talks about the causes of the war. And he says, look, that this rupture in our Constitution was itself the cause of the war. He says this book offers a different perspective, not one that is built on slavery or not slavery as a cause. He says it's a different perspective. One informed centrally by the structure of the Compromise Constitution and Lincoln's changing relation to it. In other words... It's a constitutional crisis. What does the Constitution actually mean? The Compromise Constitution, I argue, was a framework for compromise over slavery so basic to the structure of the Union before the war that no one can imagine breaking it by abolishing slavery nationally and still preserving the Union intact. Lincoln's hope before the war that slavery would eventually become extinct depended on a vague a fantasy that the compromise framework would eventually evolve so that slavery would be abolished voluntarily by the states, slave states, with compensation for slaveholders and colonization for free slaves to Africa. Well, that's not just before the war. He actually hoped to do that till the end of the war, right? 1865. The neo-revisionists are correct that Lincoln himself would not have countenanced any other sort of abolition were it not for the secession and the war. To do so would have broken the Constitution as he knew it. So the neo-revisionists are... He would you know, maybe classify me as kind of a neo-revisionist. Right? At the same time, the Compromise Constitution contained a fundamental contradiction that ensured its instability. The Compromise structure enabled the Union to expand, yet every expansion destabilized the Compromise by raising anew the question of whether slavery itself could be, should be extended. Well, who raised that anew? Well, of course, nationalists in the North. And why did they do that? Because they wanted sectional power. That's Michael Holt, right? So all these things are wrapped in together. He just calls this a constitutional crisis instead of looking at what's really happening here, which is a sectional power grab by the North. That's all it was. Southern secessionists came to see this contradiction as so devastating that they would eventually make further compromise impossible. They seceded because they sensed correctly that compromise over the extension of slavery had come to an end. The fundamentalists are therefore right to say that for the seceding southern states, the threat to slavery indeed was indeed existential. Now, again, 
the Deep South did talk about slavery, and they did talk about the threat to slavery from a North that they believed was bent on exterminating the institution, not only in the territories, but also in the southern states. They talked about this. Of course they did. They looked at it as a real threat. If they could do all these other unconstitutional things, as Calhoun had suggested in 1837, why couldn't they abolish slavery? Well, I mean, maybe they could have. So this is important. It took Lincoln well over a year of his presidency, a period in which secession had occurred and the war raged, to acknowledge the reality that the old constitutional compromise could never be restored. When he eventually did, the Emancipation Proclamation was the result. The rupture of the Constitution opened the door for its reconstruction on new terms as the moral Constitution we know and revere today. On new terms as the moral Constitution we know today. This is what Barnett and Burnick have said. Right? It's the new Constitution that we revere today. A new moral constitution. So we scrap the old one and we recreate it and get a new one. And Lincoln was the pivot, the switch that made that happen. Again, these are things that I've been arguing, Tom DiLorenzo has been arguing, and lots of people, Ludwell Johnson and Southerners, back until the 1860s have been arguing. This is exactly what happened. You have Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens saying, yeah, the old constitution has been destroyed. And essentially Feldman is saying, you're right. Y'all are right about all that. You're right about everything. You're right about uh, the powers of, con- uh, powers of Lincoln during the war. You're right about him being a dictator. You're right about Lincoln doing all these bad things with the Constitution. You're right about all of it. You're actually right about the Constitution protecting slavery in many ways. You're right about that. So what happened is Lincoln turned a switch and we had a new Constitution. The transformation took three constitutional amendments. The original meaning of the 14th Amendment, right? So all this works together. This is all the myths. The Lincolnian myth is the core to all of this. This is what I wanted you to get out of this week of podcasts, which I know are longer than normal, because this is really important stuff. They abolished slavery, guaranteed equal protection of laws for all citizens, and extended voting rights to African-American men. Over the next 150 years, these amendments were by turns applied during Reconstruction, Betrayed through the rise of Jim Crow segregation. Well, that's interesting because the Supreme Court didn't say that, but um, Jim Crow segregation was around before the war in the North, which some Northerners are now openly uh, conceding. Um, but of course, C. Van Woodward said it in The Strange Career of Jim, Jim Crow I mean, 50 years ago, right? Oh, well, I guess they were right. And redeemed by Brown v. Board of Education, the Civil Rights Movement and the Landmark Laws enacted as a result of the movement's influence, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Today, more than ever, we realize that the redemption was itself incomplete. We remain, however, committed to the idea that the moral constitution embodied in those amendments should be our beacon. Lincoln's transformed moral version of the constitution endures. So, the book, The Broken Constitution, Lincoln's Slavery and the Refounding of America. So, He's admitting that we have a new constitution based on Abraham Lincoln and then, of course, the Civil War amendments. The old constitution's gone. We can't even rely on that thing anymore. That thing was bad. We got this new one we got to use. And the problem with that, of course, is that the old one's still sitting there. This is why you know, people like Eric Foner and I guess these progressive originalists like Randy Barnett and others and Noah Feldman are trying to say, okay, well, you guys are right about the old constitution. They've, they've conceded. You're right. You're right about all that. But we got this new constitution. It's the 14th Amendment. So the key now becomes 
the 14th Amendment, right? They've, they've moved the goalposts. They've conceded the field on the one side, and now they've gone to this. Can we refute them enough to show that they're all a bunch of full of, uh, full of hogwash and full of bunk there too, right? Of course we can. Of course we can. Raul Berger already did it, but most people don't read Raul Berger. So maybe I'll do something on Raul Berger, and, and I've already gone through his book a little bit, uh, last week, but maybe we'll do some more of Burger. I don't know. Anyways, this has been a fun week on the Brian McClanahan Show. I hope you enjoyed it. A little longer podcast than normal. I'll see you next week. And now, if you again, if you want to get me five times, I've got the Abbeville Institute podcast also one time a week. Just go to abbevilleinstitute.org and you can find the podcast there or search for it, right? It's also available on uh, you know Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the podcast platforms. And so that's all things Southern. Um, I do a lot there. We talk about some of the same things at times, but um, it's a little different. Um, so if you like this podcast, you probably like that one too. So head over to that one and check it out. Don't forget to get that new Jefferson Davis class. Use the coupon code uh, Davis and you get $60 off. I'll see you next week. See you then.